What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. And Morris, what did you marinate this steak in? Because it's out of this world. You're killing me with it's no, out. No, no. It's a family secret. Come on, you could do it. <laughs> so Whitey Bulger, Adam, apparently he was a notorious thief of secret family recipes. I don't care how tough he is, he's not getting my chili recipe. Master of Disguise, Johnny Depp goes southy as the infamous Boston gangster in the new film Black Mass. Our review, plus the top five neighborhood movies. That and more. Ground garlic and soy sauce. Gotta try that. Ahead on Film Spotting. Please, once again, to be brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And this week, Josh, they're presenting a special event. After the Beijing Independent Film Festival was shut down by the government, filmmakers from the Chinese independent film scene found an outlet in New York for the inaugural festival, Cinema on the Edge. Mubi is proud to present a selection from this year's lineup, direct from the fest, including features and documentaries. This week, they're also featuring one of... My favorite films. I love Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, regularly hailed as one of the greatest films ever made. Bertolucci's supreme masterpiece is both a 70s political thriller and a surreal, highly sensual journey to Europe's troubled past. It was a huge influence on Coppola for The Godfather, and I agree, it's essential to this day. We've got one more movie recommendation for you here. It's Raja with the Venice Film Festival just concluded. Movies highlighting a gem from the festival's past. Candidly entering dangerous emotional ground, Jacques Toyan's tale of seduction and manipulation explores the divides of sex, class, race, and age. Najat Bensalem won the Fest Prize for New Acting Talent. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. This week, we take us down to the old neighborhood, maybe hit a bar or two, have supper, some chowder maybe, take some pitches of the local color. That's enough of that. Our top five this week, neighborhood movies. Not all of them set in Boston. That's later in the show. Just leave the funny voices to me, all right? Before we get to the top five, we weigh in on Black Mass. Will Johnny Depp's performance as Whitey Bulger finally make Adam a bona fide fan? In the beginning... Jim was a small-town player. He's a very smart, disciplined man. Take your shot, but make it your best. Because I get up, I eat you. And the next thing you know, he's a damn kingpin. You know why? Because the FBI let it happen. I grew up with Jimmy and his brother Billy, the senator. And that is a bond that doesn't get broken. Your brother is wading into some very dark waters. Jimmy's business is Jimmy's business. We all need friends. Even Jimmy. Even you. I can help you, Jimmy. And you can help me. It's an alliance. We get the FBI to fight our wars. And we 
whatever we want to do. The success. Just getting started. From Little Caesar to Scarface, the movies have always been infatuated with gangsters. And gangster James Joseph Whitey Bulger Jr. was made for the movies. Ruthless but charming, with ice blue eyes, Bulger's reign atop the Boston Irish crew known as the Winter Hill Gang in the 70s and 80s is the stuff of legend. Befitting his infamy, Bulger first served federal time for armed robbery and hijacking in 1956, only to be transferred in 1959 from Atlanta Penitentiary to the most cinematic of all prisons, Alcatraz. His story has already been covered in one movie, Joe Berlinger's 2014 documentary Whitey, United States of America vs. James J. Bulger. It was really only a matter of time before a filmmaker fashioned his tale of corruption, greed, and murder. He was arrested in 2011 and indicted for 19 deaths into narrative fodder for the silver screen. And some lucky actor got to sink his teeth into Bulger's big, very terrifying shoes. Or in the case of Johnny Depp and director Scott Cooper's Black Mass, Bulger's steely contact lenses and pop collar leather jacket. Josh, Black Mass was among your most anticipated films of the fall. I, meanwhile, was openly dreading it. I simply couldn't get excited about the prospect of reveling for two hours in Bulger's vicious, calculated brand of coolness. I could ask you whether my fears were justified, or ask you the obligatory, is Johnny Depp back after a spate of absurdly bad choices? Instead, I'm going to do what I should always do, which is listen to our co-producer and my original co-host, Sam Van Halgren. After seeing Black Mass, I texted him my terse response. Being the great producer that he is, Having already seen your negative take on Twitter and Letterboxd, he said he had a feeling we might have similar overall reactions and suggested perhaps we start out with this old chestnut, the prompt he and I used to offer up to each other to conclude many of our early setups. What did you like about Black Mass, Josh? You'll get your chance to rant, so save all the things that didn't work about this movie. Give me something, anything, that almost saved it. Did you guys save those only for predominantly negative reviews? Or no. Did, okay, no, that, that was, was just... That was how we did it. Every review, at least for the first 25 episodes. Start so. positive. All right. That's I right. like it. And theoretically, I should have something positive to say. I, I use a four-star system on my site, and I went one and a half. So that means there are <laughs> redeeming qualities, I guess, if you want to go into the semantics of the dreaded star system. How about... Well, it's handsome. Let's say that. I mean, it, it looks like what you'd expect lush burnished. I love the glowing lamps they use. It's leaning pretty heavily on The Godfather. It doesn't go quite that dark, but forming these tableaus of crime and punishment and death. And quickly, I'm getting to a negative here. I think it leans on that a little bit too hard. Those Mm -hmm. are maybe the most burnished scenes are the execution scenes, and we get many of them. But that sense of craft, of visual craft, is there throughout. I would say, you know, the women in this film are few and far between, and they have very generic, largely thankless roles, but the actresses in them are doing very good work. They registered as strongly to me as anyone else in the cast, and I'm talking about Dakota Johnson, who you were a big fan of in Fifty Shades of Grey. Anastasia Steele herself. She's proving your Mm -hmm. faith in her was not unfounded. I think she's quite good here in a couple scenes. Julianne Nicholson is as well as the dreaded cop's wife. She has a lot of cop's wife roles, but also a pretty a good, well, let's say this one with Depp in which she's good in the scene, Mm -hmm. I think, where Bulger is threatening her. 
And I even liked seeing, even though it's a little bit of typecasting for her at this point, Juno Temple, who we both raved about in the Matthew McConaughey film Killer Joe as really stealing that movie, I thought. And she has maybe one scene, two scenes, I think, but she registers strongly. So there, the actresses are elevating the little that they're given to do about as high as it could go in this film. And it's a handsome production. How's that? Is that... Enough well, for you? handsome isn't the most glowing term you could use for really anything. So I can tell that that's faint praise indeed. And at the risk of being as redundant as this movie often is, I'm basically going to repeat the thing I appreciated most about this film, which is the female performances. You mentioned Nicholson, Juno Temple, and Dakota Johnson, who plays Bulger's girl and mother of his son. Though, again, singling out something to praise here, their performances... And their characters who do breathe life into the movie whenever they're on screen. It also highlights one of the movie's deficiencies, which is they're barely in the movie. You said thankless roles. They basically function to, in the case of one of the women, humanize Whitey Bulger. Actually make him look compassionate and somewhat sympathetic. And in the other two cases, they give Depp a chance to have a big scene where he gets to be really ruthless and scary. In a movie already filled with scenes where he acts ruthless and scary. Nicholson here is also an anchor in that she weighs Joel Edgerton's character down. That's John Connolly, the cop who was in cahoots. He's an FBI agent, actually. He was in cahoots with Whitey Bulger. Both of their careers were more successful as they were working together. She weighs him down, and in the screenplay, she's really just there to show us how he's supposedly changing as a person and not for the better. So her only function and status in the movie is as it relates directly to him. So, yes, thankless. I would agree with you on that. There are some other good performances, though, in this film, and they primarily come from the supporting actors. And I'll get to one moment in particular I like, too. This is Depp's vehicle, surely, and Edgerton probably has even more screen time. You've got the Batch, Benedict Cumberbatch, who is third build, and I think he's solid. He's charismatic, he has gravitas, but he's a really understated he's actor. He's kind of in his own little movie, though. Yeah, he that is. He, You're right. he pops in every once in a while in Agreed. this movie. But when he's on screen, I like him. And there are bigger names in small roles who are fine, too, like Kevin Bacon as an FBI guy. Peter Sarsgaard, who I actually think is kind of a blast in this movie as a coked-out hood. They're all good. But the people who are far more interesting to watch are the that guys. Rory Cochran, Corey Stoll, W. Earl Brown, Bill Camp. Jesse Plemons. Some of these guys, like Brown and Cochran especially, they just wear years of self-abuse and misery on their faces. They don't have to act at all. And when Scott Cooper chooses to keep our eyes as viewers on Cochran's face, he plays Whitey's right-hand guy. As Whitey kills somebody who's close to Rory Cochran's character, in this case Steve Fleming, there is a really complex dynamic at play there between Flemmy and the victim and between Flemmy and Bulger. And the look on Cochran's face there, the look on his face when he's cooperating with the feds too later, that's as complex, unfortunately, as this movie gets. I think that is one of the standout performances. I'm glad you listed off those names. Jesse Plemons was the one for me that probably registered the strongest. And his face is the one, if I recall, the movie opens with mm -hmm. a close-up of this just this meaty mug right in our face. And I was into it. And at this point, this is one of Bulger's right-hand men who's turned on him to testify with the FBI. And he's being interviewed about that. And I thought... 
wow, we're going to get this multifaceted view of the guy because we spend the next maybe 10 minutes with Plemons character, Kevin Weeks, the first time he joins the gang as yeah. kind of this, um, it's feeling you know, like Goodfellas a little it's bit. It's a little Goodfellas, get but into the life. yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a bouncer and he's messing up even that job, but it was an interesting angle and Plemons captures us just with his face. No contact lenses going on, hmm. no wig work that's ostentatious, just his face and his expressions. And then Kevin Weeks disappears. Yeah. I mean, there there are times where he's in the background, but it's not that he disappears because we're going to jump to another perspective of Vulture. And this is going to be this multifaceted narrative no, that I try thought. try that a little bit. I, maybe that's what it's going for. But as you said, it turns the movie over to the Edgerton character for a good chunk of the running time. Right. And this is after it's introduced Bulger. And it seems to be, okay, it's going to be the crime boss story that we may have expected from the beginning. And that was just a little diversion at the beginning with the Kevin Weeks character. But then it leaves Bulger behind to concentrate on Connolly. And I think the lack of focus here is a significant underlying structural problem that Black Mass has, Mm -hmm. which doesn't let us ever really hook on one particular perspective of this story. How come no one has done Whitey Bulger? He seems to be involved in every crime in the city, and yet the Bureau keeps saying he's clean. It's only when another agency has an informant that I hear maybe Whitey isn't so squeaky clean. Well, yeah, he's very careful. He doesn't use phones, that kind of stuff. And uh, Who did you say these other informants were? I didn't. Listen, from what I hear, his criminal days were all but over. His his partner and him, they gone legit. Christ, Carly. Is Whitey never using phones and careful, or is Whitey retired? I don't... I mean, I just... I'm not in my office. It, these are things that I hear. I don't know if all of them are true. Do your job and find out. The big thing for me, Josh, that I was thinking about walking in, and unfortunately, the movie didn't answer it for me, what was the artistic impulse that drove this film? Why was it made? What's the angle? What's something we haven't seen before in a crime movie, in a Boston crime movie, in a psychopathic gangster crime movie? What will challenge us as viewers? And I went back and looked at my letterbox review of the Berlinger documentary, and I lamented that there wasn't a whole lot to be done visually with this doc. Particularly, I really didn't need to see yet another helicopter shot of the Boston courthouse. And then it was funny to watch this movie and see shot after shot as transitions of Boston Harbor and the Boston architecture, as if it was suggesting something nefarious about the city. And that was redundant here, as it was in that documentary. But I thought that Berlinger did cut to, this is how I phrased it, and I'm sorry to quote myself here, but he cut to the essence of the personal and political complexities of the case. And one of the more fascinating elements that he introduces is actually something that comes at the end of the film, explicitly by Whitey Bulger in voiceover. And he slams this industry that continues to prosper around him. So I'm going to read Bulger here. He says, this is a sham trial. The feds of the green light, nobody ever checks on them. These reporters are hand-fed stuff from FBI agents, and then they write crime stories, they write books, and everything else. They're hand and fist with them. The one thing they all know is it works. This system here It isn't going to change. And I wondered, is a documentary about Bulger, even with Berlinger's decidedly non-sensationalistic approach and good intentions, is it ultimately just another cog in that machine? And then I watched this film, and it turns out my fear 
about what kind of movie I would get was basically realized. The only reason for this movie's existence, as far as I can tell, is to give Johnny Depp a juicy chance to play a monster. He gets to be tough and intimidating and, of course, hide behind a whole lot of makeup and other things and kill people in cool ways and also dole out words of wisdom in hushed tones like, it's not what you do, it's when and where you do it and who you do it to or with if nobody sees it. It didn't happen. They're chilling lines. They're delivered in a chilling way. It's fun in fits and spurts. It doesn't sustain over the course of the whole movie. Not for me. Yeah, I think I think maybe that was Depp's motivation. But the reason I believe this has been in development for a long time. And the reason for that is there is something relatively unique about this particular story in the relationship that Bulger had with the FBI. Not that other crime figures weren't informants, but that it went on so long. And my sense is that is what maybe not this movie was interested in. That's what the idea behind a movie about Bulger was interested in. And the film touches on that because the Connolly character who knows Bulger from his childhood, that's how they connect. That's how he gets him to be an informant. Mm -hmm. And it's the perennial, you know, the cop and the criminal are flip sides of the same coin. But this is a little bit of an interesting twist on it because it's based in fact and it's such a lengthy relationship and it leads to all these other double crosses. So I understand why this movie wanted to be made, why people would have been drawn to this particular story and had the idea that we could do a different sort of crime story with this. Now, what have we gotten? Well, that nugget is lost in this film, except for some very obvious scenes where they state quite clearly that this is what's happening. It's lost, yes, because Depp's performance becomes the priority, certainly in his own mind. And so he's elevating himself above the rest of the cast, doing something different than any other element of the movie is doing. So that's a problem. And also it does come back to the structure in that this one thing that could have been interesting about Bolger being part of that system as much as the FBI was that gets lost because there are all these other threads that keep dropping in and out. Yeah, I agree with you completely. The material is ripe. That relationship, that dynamic between Bolger and Connolly and their joint ambition and that mindset of a character who grows up, as you noted, feeling a little bit of a debt to a really bad guy who maybe is a little bit even of a father figure and then He sells his soul to him to get what he thinks he's entitled to in life. There's something very American about that Mm -hmm. and very dark and intriguing. There are two problems with going down that path. The first one is it makes Joel Edgerton, John Connolly, the star of Black Mass, not Johnny Depp, Whitey Bulger. And clearly they do want, even if he's not even on screen as much as Joel Edgerton, his performance is the one they want us talking about. And That seems to have been mostly successful in terms of some of the other comments I've seen about this film. The second problem, though, is that that movie was already made, Josh. It's called The Departed. Which is sure, a great it's movie. Infernal Affairs. I mean, it's it's exactly. a perennial right. It, it's a perennial theme, but but I still think you know it, it it yeah the material is here basically. So if they drop the ball, one of the reasons I think is Depp's performance, and I'm more of a Depp fan, we've discovered in our recent discussion of his career lately, than you. I am also a fan of when he goes big and does some of his more theatrical performances, but those are haunting him here. And it's not just a matter of his look, which, as you described it, is is exactly right. It's not quite human. They've emphasized his 
pallor. It's vampiric a little bit. Um, he's so pa- he look he looks like a dead gecko, and <laughs> and there's no reason for that if the rest of the film isn't going to be as stylized. I'm not complaining about that technique because I've appreciated in depth performances before, but it's in the wrong movie here. And what it does for me, it's more than just how he looks. I, I tried to say, okay, this is how he looks. Get past it. You know, I'm not going to let that kick me out of the movie when he first makes an appearance and looks so strange. But I think it really affects his performance here. And in a way, it has to. If you have altered yourself physically to a degree, that's got to be in your mind at some level. And you start performing or acting with that in your consciousness as well. Now, he's not doing Willy Wonka. He's not doing Captain Jack. But he's closer to that than Donnie Brasco. And this is a movie that needed... He could still be scary. He could still be menacing. He could still own the film. But in the way that maybe in Jack theory, Nicholson yeah. owned his scenes to go back to The Departed, where there was... Though he's big in that movie, Josh. He's, he's big, but he's insinuating. I mean, if you... It, he's He makes you understand why... And he's playing the Bulger figure, as you said. He makes you understand why this guy might have been feared and why he might have been followed. We don't understand that here. We're told that and we see that. And I I think Nicholson is doing something. Yes, he, it's the sort of theatricality Depp could have brought to this role and made work instead of what he is giving us, which sets Bulger apart from everyone else, but not in a way that's revealing to what made him a crime boss. Mm-hmm. It sets him apart from everyone else because of the style and uh, just the, the sensibility that he's bringing to the film. I don't really like his performance. I don't even really like Joel Edgerton's performance. I do like all the other ones I singled out, but I think both of those leads are a little bit too showy for what this film needed. That said, neither of them derailed this film for me. There are all these other issues we're talking about that were really the problem. We do fundamentally disagree as well sometimes on what constitutes a big or small performance. I don't think Depp is as egregiously obnoxious here or distracting as maybe you do again he's still, not the strength of this movie I think, though i think it's because he's still yeah, he is you know still. that's he's not flailing his yeah, arms he's around quiet but, but if you can be still and also like draw bad attention to yourself he's managing to do that yeah the redundancy in the structure that we've talked about are the bigger issues for me and it's not just in the depth repetition of seeing him scene after scene be scary and ruthless, but with Edgerton as well. The conceit of this film amounts to Whitey does something really bad. FBI agents then have a scene wondering why they're allowing him to continue wreaking havoc on Boston. And Edgerton comes up with a convincing answer. And then Whitey does something else really bad. The FBI questions it. And Edgerton comes up with a convincing answer. That redundancy does eventually lead to one halfway decent moment which is where we finally see the Edgerton character flail a little bit. He finally encounters someone who won't take his BS and calls him on, and that's Corey Stahl as the new DA. Also a good performance, I'd say. Yeah, really good. Yeah, I singled him out. None of his tricks, none of Connolly's tricks work with that character, and that floundering and that futility is entertaining, and it's also revealing. There's another good moment that I won't spoil near the end of the film with Edgerton's performance where we finally see some humility in his character and it's because he's trying to avoid further humiliation. So a couple little moments like that work. Overall, it's just a constant repetition. And that structure in terms of starting with voiceover and we're meeting all these different characters and then we're seeing the people who we're hearing in voiceover. It's Connolly's movie. 
then it's Bolger's movie, and then it goes back to being Connolly's, and then we still get some of the voiceover and scenes with the feds kind of narrating the story. It just really can't make up its mind whose story it wants to be. Yeah, and the redundancy also carries over into the execution scenes, which we get many of. And the problem with that is I don't sense that I've learned anything new about Bolger with you know, the eighth execution that I didn't know with the third, it seems to be, again, more the the interest in staging these in a way that echoes maybe The Godfather or or a film like that. Um, they're, to use that word, they're, they're handsome, but they're not enlightening in any way. And they become to be a little deadening. They should be deadening. These are execution scenes. Yeah. But more deadening because it, what? why are we seeing this yet again? Well, how is is it advancing either any thematic concerns or the narrative itself? I guess it's advancing the historical events. That's about where we're at mm-hmm. by the end. I probably don't need to provide this disclaimer because I hope by now listeners understand that I would always rather see a good movie than be right about a bad movie. I mean, if I'm going to take two hours out of my schedule, I want to enjoy a film. But I was thinking back to a little exchange that I had with a listener after we did our fall movie preview where I threw out this fear I had about Black Mass. And Isaac in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, wrote in and said that he understood what I was saying about it maybe unintentionally glorifying criminals, but he thinks the parts in the trailer that make Depp look like a cool guy don't portray criminals in a positive light. They show why people like him can be so successful. That's what maybe Isaac was hoping for. And I responded that intellectually, I get what he's after and that the movie might be commenting on something profound in that way. But emotionally, all I knew was that after this movie, people would be paying 50 bucks to take a walking tour of Whitey Bulger's Boston and taking selfies and posting them on Facebook of all the places that Johnny Depp shot some poor mug. So I'm Googling today, Josh, right before coming here, Black Mass, because I wanted to know a little bit about the derivation of the term Black Mm -hmm. Mass, because even that is so wonderfully generically ominous. It says nothing at all about what this film should be but actually is quite accurate in how generically ominous the film is. And what's the third link I see on the page posted just three hours ago? The Hollywood Reporter, Black Mass Spurs Whitey Bulger Memorabilia Sales. I mean, Whitey had this <laughs> right. I mean, he had this right in that quote yeah, I mentioned. Yeah. He but knew of course, this was just an industry. But that's, I mean, are you never going to make a film about a story where that might happen? No. I mean, I'm, I'm less inclined to hold that I'm not holding that against the film. The movie. No, yeah. but... The movie certainly didn't do anything to detract from it or make him less glorified. Yeah, I would it say, makes him you know, really cool. Honestly, I would say it's it's middle of the road in terms of that concern about glorifying criminals. Certainly there are movies that do it in a much more enthralling vein and you can tell that that's their purpose. I I think even Depp's performance you can sense that he is trying to provide some other it's not to glorify Bulger but he is trying to you said humanize him and I think that's important. I mean if this is going to be a based on fact portrayal of an actual human being, we can't delude ourselves and pretend like this was just some boogeyman who came from another planet. Mm-hmm. I mean it would be actually interesting to understand how someone who is a real person could commit these acts. So yeah, I wish this so movie I give had them, really tried that, that that's, rather that's than giving us that's obligatory scenes of emotional tragedy where we're the supposed scenes to that try to humanize him a real person do not work. No, yeah, they, they do not work. I don't think the movie pushes it over to the edge to glorifying, though. It's it's I guess I'll wait to get worked up about that 
sort of filmmaking for a different movie. Well, we might be getting bogged down in the word glorify. The fact is, for me, I still see this movie as existing for no other reason than for Johnny Depp to chew on those lines. And so that's enough for me. The person I really feel bad for in this movie, honestly, is Adam Scott. He is almost literally waiting for him to get a scene, just a mustache in this film. Yeah. After scene after scene, watching him shot after shot, just expressionlessly react to something that another character says. He finally does get like one minute on screen where he says something and does something integral to the plot. It truly does last only about two seconds, but at least his character finally does something. Otherwise, it really is just reaction shot, reaction shot. Mustache, mustache. There's got to be something on the cutting room floor there. You know, now if he had given Johnny Depp his mustache, then we would have had a real Johnny Depp performance. Indeed. Black Mass is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We're not done with Depp yet. The results of the film spotting polls about the actor's career, yes, that's polls, plural, are up next. Plus, I'll recap my first trip to the Toronto International Film Festival. Stay with us. Melissa always said she had a right to be wrong Maybe that's the reason she lied Remy said that he was only looking for a friend Not to ask him up inside No one knows exactly what went down in that room How the truth came out of from whose lips Sometimes it builds like a dam and it bursts Other times it stumbles and slips Till it all comes out Go on and jump and shout But it's gonna take a war To stop it Now, Remy said a scar ran down the side of his face The cops said, son, that isn't enough Well, he called himself the Greek But he only spoke French We met him after hours at the club Melissa said she fainted at the side of it all She said Remy had to carry me out See, I've never seen a gun up close in person before And the words like honey poured from my mouth And it all came out Go on and jump and shout But it's gonna take a while to stop it Quick interruption just to let you know, Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. We occasionally get listener testimonials about Squarespace and recently got one from Andrus Ostrom. Longtime listener, rarely write, but I wanted to let you know that I finished directing a music video and created a really beautiful Squarespace site for it. I heard that you sometimes feature sites and was wondering if you could feature my site on Film Spotting. I first heard about Squarespace from you guys and I couldn't have done what I wanted to do so inexpensively without it. And we will provide the link to MassiveSonata.com. And it's a very, very sharp-looking website. Well done, Andres. And that makes sense because all Squarespace websites are professionally designed regardless of your skill level with no coding required. They offer intuitive and easy-to-use tools, state-of-the-art technology to power the site, ensuring security and stability. It's a platform trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Squarespace is offering a free domain if you sign up for one year. Start your free trial today. No credit card required at Squarespace. Squarespace.com. When you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM to get a special offer on your first purchase. The Greek faced the camera, didn't utter a word. He couldn't speak or even move his head. 
prosecutor stood, cracked a joke, and his smile said, You don't know it, son, but you're already dead. And it all came out. Go on and jump this shell. Oh, but it's gonna take a State Department is pulling an agent that specializes in responding to escalated cartel activity. This is not my department. That's Emily Blunt in the trailer for Sicario, about a secret CIA operation to hunt down a Mexican drug cartel boss. One of the highly anticipated movies of the fall, Sicario had a record-breaking opening weekend on just six screens last weekend, and it expands to many cities, including Chicago, this weekend before opening nationally the first weekend of October. It's the movie, Josh, we are planning to review next week on the show, along with, of course... A top five list to be decided. We are kicking around movies set south of the border. We are always open to suggestions. Feedback at filmspotting.net if you have a great top five tie-in. You can also find us on Twitter at filmspotting. We have a very tough death match coming up in just a bit. Plus, our last word on Johnny Depp for hopefully a long time. But first, we do have a couple of notes. Did you notice, Josh, how I did all that talking about Sicario without mentioning the director's name? Very elegant, but... (laughs) We know how to say it now, (laughs) so we should just be throwing it around all over the place. Speaking of that and some of the fun we've had with pronunciation lately and certain phrases we shouldn't be saying and talk of film spotting drinking games, Kelvin Bailey in Columbia, Kentucky had the best email of the week. Josh, why don't you go ahead and do the honors? Adam, could you ask Josh to please stop using the word film? And while you're at it, it would be great if he would stop using the words the and director and octagon. (laughs) <laughs> See, you can't say this it. This is great. Octagonal. Octagonal? I was going to go octagonal. Ooh, octagonal See? is probably right. Octagonal. This is just it's perfect. Octagonal. This is perfect. Kelvin continues, also, I'm going to have to insist that you guys learn the correct pronunciation of Bill Murray. It's pretty easy, really. Bill should rhyme with Will, and Murray should rhyme with whole nother. Thank you for your cooperation. <laughs> the funny part is, well, there's a lot funny there, but when I read the first line, I actually thought, oh, he wanted you to stop saying the word film. Me too. Like, somehow That's you how mispronounced have the word lately. film. I was like, I cannot <laughs> believe it. I, I told him, I emailed him back, I was like, this absolutely made my yeah. day. I saw that first thing in the morning. I was good for the rest good of the stuff. day. Yeah. We are very happy to frequently give away passes to see movies here in Chicago. Sometimes they're free passes after the movie's already open. Sometimes they are for advanced screenings. And we had some tickets for the new movie, The Walk, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in that Robert Zemeckis film that was being promoted on our site over the past week or two. That is full up, Josh. I don't think there are any more passes available, but there is an October 2nd screening of the indie gambling drama Mississippi Grind with film spotting favorite Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds, and it's directed by the team that gave us Half Nelson and Sugar, Anna Bowden, and Ryan Fleck. So, if you are curious about that and you are in the Chicago area, you can get a chance to see that October 2nd screening. Just go to filmspotting.net and there is information about how to enter in the top story section of our website. Also wanted to share a friendly plug for a movie I have seen and can recommend. I saw an early cut of it. Our buddy, Dave Chen, from the Slash Film podcast, 
directed a movie about his partner in podcasting, Stephen Tobolowsky, the great, great character actor, one of the all-time that guys. They work together on the Tobolowsky Files, which is about his life and his life in the movie business. And Dave made a documentary that chronicles one show or documents one big performance of Stevens. It's called The Primary Instinct. And as of this week, it's available via VOD on all platforms. So certainly wish David and Steven a lot of luck with that movie. Again, I can recommend it. Josh, have we talked about yet the fact that you are soon going to be an author of not just movie reviews, but an author of a book about movies? Uh, you made a reference to it, but uh, I, I kind of don't want to because then Choo-choo the reality the hits me Come that on. I have to get this thing done. Plug it a little bit. It's yeah. a big deal. All right. It's, uh, I'm, I am excited about it. It's the whole concept. The working title is Movies Are Prayers. And if some listeners are familiar with the writing I do at the day job, Think Christian, um, it's going to be a combination of theology and film. So I'm looking at, we'll start off looking at the different forms that prayer can take. So there are prayers of lament. There are prayers of praise. And it seemed pretty obvious to me as I've watched movies over the years that they quite frequently function in the same way. So that's the basic idea, exploring about 10 different forms of prayer and then looking at a whole bunch of movies from different times, genres, um, somewhat top five list thinking here is how can we group these together under this one theme and hopefully the idea will be uh, just one other way of understanding films and maybe it'll also illuminate a little bit of theology in some way a different way of understanding that and um, yeah it's going to be due let's see Uh, (laughs) well I was going to say it's due about half point next year okay so so a little time that is coming up We are, of course, going to share lots more information about it as we get closer to the release. But we really do have plenty of time because despite your deadline, the book doesn't come out to like 2021. So people (laughs) really have to stay tuned. I was a little surprised. They put out a press release and said uh, it's it's with InterVarsity Press. They said something about fall 2017. I was like, is that that right? That seems like I know nothing about this. I haven't done a book before. And they said, well, there's usually a lot of production revision time. And you're a terrible writer. A long ways away. You must not have a lot of faith in me. Maybe if things go well, I'll be able to push that up a little bit. That's the goal, but but we'll see. I was pouring sweat. My blood is too thick for Nevada. I've never been able to properly explain myself in this climate. Okay. Be quiet. Be calm. Name? Frank? And press affiliation. Nothing else. Johnny Depp, of course, there as Raul Duke in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. A Depp performance apparently beloved by many film spotting listeners. We'll hear from some of them in a bit. It is film spotting poll time. We have already spent more time discussing Johnny Depp's career over the past two weeks than we have in 10 years of shows combined because of these polls. You're just loving it, aren't you? (laughs) A couple weeks back, in anticipation of our review of Black Mass, we asked listeners, how do you like your Johnny Depp? Just Depp? Completely recognizable in performances like Donnie Brasco, theatrical Johnny, where he's somewhat recognizable in performances like Ed Wood. And I suppose I would throw in his performance in Black Mass as Whitey Bulger. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Or Long Gone John. He's just completely (laughs) unrecognizable. If you didn't know it from the credits or from hype ahead of time, you might not guess that it was Johnny Depp. That qualifies as a Sam Van Hogger nickname, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Long Gone John. I like that. (laughs) I hope Johnny adopts that. How did it come out, Josh? 
Long Gone John, last place, only 9%. Jumped up to 32% for Just Depp, where he's completely recognizable. But the clear favorite, 59% here, went to Theatrical Johnny. Which is where we thought it would go. It's kind of the middle ground choice, of course. Stephen from San Francisco said, I just finished a book about U.S. international relations during the Cold War. I can't wait to hear where this is going, Stephen. And kept wondering how our leaders could support dictators guilty of such massive crimes simply because of one tactfully useful attribute. How did they sleep at night? Tonight, voting for unrecognizable Depp, I'll have to ask myself the same question. He did some terrible, terrible things. Alice in Wonderland, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Lone Ranger. But sleep be damned, if Edward Scissorhands falls, so does America. That was my moral dilemma, too, Stephen. Glad someone else was going through that. Kathy W. from the Western New York area said, Guys created this poll, and so far only guys have commented. So it's understandable that you've left out romantic, cheesy, but still hot Johnny Depp. For example, Chocolat and Don Juan DeMarco. Unfortunately, I can't think of any other films in that category, but these are wonderful enough to have their own. Okay, so I'll do it. Full disclosure, full disclosure, my bias against Johnny Depp. This is why I didn't like Black Mass. It's why I don't think he's a great actor or someone I really like. It all goes back to shock a lot. It all goes back to the fact that my wife thinks he's hot. And it <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't a, a matter. More rational reason. How grungy and grimy and dirty he is. In fact, I think that only makes her yeah, like him I, more. I think you're, if she's listening and to this. And that troubles me. And so I hate him. You I know really what? I hate Johnny Depp. Don Juan DeMarco. Really good movie. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I would I recommend it. I have not it. seen it. All right. Okay. Corey H. from Moscow writes in, I don't even really like Depp, but this is reaching film spotting deathmatch levels of frustration for me because the only three I do enjoy are Public Enemies, Ed Wood, and Edward Scissorhands, which are freaking naturally all in different <laughs> categories. Apparently, I like my Johnny Depp somewhat completely unrecognizable. There you go. Well done, Corey. So feedback like Corey's, that did get us thinking. If listeners weren't voting for categories of performance, but they were voting specifically for Depp performances, would the results look any different? Different. Would that middle ground category of somewhat recognizable still come out on top? And, well, our experiment proves that the answer is yes. We asked you what your favorite depth performance was. Donnie Brasco in Donnie Brasco, Ed Wood in Ed Wood, or Edward Scissorhands, and, of course, Edward Scissorhands. We did give you other. If there is some other Johnny Depp performance that you hold above all of those, how did it come out, Josh? Donnie Brasco, 12% in last place. Other came in after that, 17%. Edward Scissorhands, my vote, 24% for second place, but winning was Ed Wood with 48% of the vote. An outraged Tom Morris wrote in, how did you leave Raul Duke, a.k.a. Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, off this poll? That's the character that has been most associated with him. A little more on that from Jonathan Anderson from Denver. As much as I love Depp's performance in Fear and Loathing, hence my voting other, calling anything other than Jack Sparrow the role most associated with him is wishful thinking. Maybe most associated among the film geek circles. Mm, I think Jonathan is right there. This from Aaron Villeneuve Teachman in D.C. Nicely done. Somehow Aaron got us to say it. I knew I wasn't going to be the first or only person to mention Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but that is also my absolute favorite performance by Johnny Depp. What a performance. Depp is manic, frantic, intense, and constantly freaked out. I rooted hard for this unkempt and bedraggled man, hoping that he would survive the monstrous forces arrayed against him, especially his own personal devil, I mean lawyer, a role that Benicio Del Toro devours with such insane vigor that it overshadows even Depp's tweaked-out performance. Terry Gilliam left a mark on me with this film, and Depp is a major reason why. So this is strange. Big fan of Depp. Love Terry Gilliam. Yeah. I don't care for Fear and Loathing I don't either, in Las Vegas. But I have only seen it once, yeah, and it was many was years ago, say. and I've never wrestled with it. So Deserves a revisit. Maybe that's a 
sacred cow at some point. I don't know if it's that well regarded, but among Film Spotting Nation, it is that well Seems regarded. So we could probably justify it. That brings us to this week's poll question, which is a great one. This is a great death match, though, Josh. We are going to have one of our patented on air production meetings here because I think we need you to weigh in on one of the options here. Okay. This Ridley Scott death match. We're looking ahead past Sicario to Scott's The Martian with Matt Damon. It's a movie that came up a couple times on our fall movie preview. My number four most anticipated movie, Michael Phillips, number four as well. But I'm not sure that among the compelling things about The Martian we talked about much is that it's Ridley Scott returning to the genre he's best known for, even if that only makes up a small percentage of his directing output. It is, of course, science fiction. So the death match is to make you choose between his two best loved films, both science fiction. You can guess what they are, and I know people already are listening in their cars or at their desks or at the gym, and they are screaming in frustration at having to pick between these two options. Alien and Prometheus. <laughs> no, <laughs> how alien, dare you? Alien and Blade Runner. <laughs> alien and Blade yes. Runner. Those so, are the choices. The production meeting portion of this okay. is Sam and I decided that we would liven up the deathmatch by not making it so explicitly a death match, we would give people the other option. We know the votes are primarily, we feel confident anyway, that the votes are primarily going to be split between those two films. Okay. But I am kind of curious to hear from people who think that there really is a Ridley Scott film that's much, much better than either of those two movies. So we left other in there. Sam agreed with me. But I'm also curious to see how it would come out if we really did just pit those two films against each other. What do you think? Yeah, well, I'm trying to think, how is that going to alter the votes for... Mm. It, because if it someone... It might legitimately change which film ends on top. Right. Yeah. In Siphoning which case, votes. I don't, I don't approve. Okay. And I generally don't approve of complicating things the way you guys do. No, so you don't. So for that, I also say nay. Well, we could always just... It means nothing. We're going to do it anyway. We could always just do the Ridley Scott Deathmatch <laughs> Wait, Poll 2.0 that's what I next like. week. Let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> I love where this is going. I get to have my cake and eat it too. For now, you have to pick between Alien and Blade Runner. Deathmatch rules. The loser goes into the dustbin for eternity. Now, Josh, do you this want to weigh in here? No, or do there's you, no way do you I can think do about this it? I can't either. I've thought about it, and I don't have an answer. I mean, so Where's the your distinction gut? to me— Where's your gut? Just tell me. Right I, now, I you had to pick. I do not have—okay, my gut is Blade Runner. My gut's Alien. Well, and so the distinction is Alien, I feel like, is more of a genre film, and Blade Runner is more of the—I don't want to say deep-think sci-fi, but a little bit more of the esoteric— um, sort of sci-fi. Yeah, but at least in my memory, ironically, it's been so long since you're I've almost seen it. describing it as if it's more art house. And Alien to me feels more art house as a no genre way. film. Absolutely, no way. absolutely. That thing moves. Oh and is no, slick it doesn't. Have you seen it recently? No. You think it's very, like ponderous and very deliberate. Very well, deliberate. maybe compared to today's standards, but I, I don't think know to just when it came standard. out. But I would love to watch these two again with this in mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's going to happen. That's our next show been... right there. Forget Sicario. Let's watch these well, two I films really and discuss. I want to see Sicario. But... <laughs> <laughs> this might just be more interesting. We want to know what you think. Vote in the Ridley Scott Deathmatch poll now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave some feedback, of course, we hope you do. Please let us know where you're listening from. You know, when this parade started 22 years ago, Jackson Heights is the only neighborhood where we could have done this in those days. Because Jackson Heights is the the most diverse community in the whole world, literally. 
We have 167 different languages spoken here. We are very, very proud of that diversity. I don't know if this is doing him justice, but the Woody Allen of documentary filmmaking, Frederick Wiseman, that's a short clip from his latest In Jackson Heights. It's his 44th film in just about as many years. Josh, you caught up with the film along with a few others last weekend when you went north for the tail end of the Toronto International Film Festival. So let's kick things off with Jackson Heights. We recently revisited our top five desert island directors, and Wiseman was a surprise inclusion on my list, though I was open about the fact that as much as I do love the movies of his that I've seen, another reason why I'd want his entire catalog on that desert island with me is because there are so many films that he's made and so many of them I haven't seen that at least I'd be watching new content. But that wasn't the only reason I pick Wiseman. He is a director I revere. I'm curious if you think, after seeing In Jackson Heights, if that would be another memorable addition to my desert island collection. Well, was your understanding that you had to stretch the time out on the island with the running time of these films? Like, were you just trying to pick the what longest? What else am I going to do? Because In Jackson Heights Talk is to a volleyball. What am I going to do? Minutes. There you go. See, is that that's why Wiseman's my guy. Does he, are all his that long? This was my introduction to him. A lot of them are that I long. I know the Berkeley really, one was quite as yeah, long. Yeah, some of his earlier stuff like Titicut Follies and High School are under 90 minutes. But certainly as he has gotten more established, I'd say over the past couple of decades, yes, his film's running times have gotten a lot longer. He really immerses That's himself the word. in these worlds. That's the word. I mean, this this neighborhood of Queens, Jackson Heights, that he brings us to, it. The, this documentary needed every minute of it. It felt that way to me so that we get this sense of what daily life is like mm-hmm. and what the challenges the people who live there are trying to face and meet together. It's a very much a film about community, and boy, am I glad I made time for it. Was because this your first Wiseman? That's, yeah, it wow. was. It was my first Wiseman. And, you know, when you're at a festival and trying to pack things in, it doesn't make logistical sense to pick the three-hour-plus documentary. Not at all. I'm looking for the under but, 90 minutes all the time. <laughs> but the group I went with, uh, they're called Into the Noise. It was a little bit of a where you could throw some requests in, but you kind of got what the schedule allowed. So that came at me, and I, I was fortunate enough to go with my dad. We did a father-son trip out of this, and it was something I knew he was interested in. So I thought, all right, let, let's go see what Wiseman is all about. And the form of the film, which you'll have to tell me is, I imagine what all of his work has done is these extended takes. There is editing in the scenes, but maybe two fixed camera angles that we jump back and forth from. And we're just sitting there. We're sitting there next to the person doing, say, their work in the tattoo shop. But we're also sitting there for a lot of these community meetings, uh, these activist groups who are talking about how are they going to meet the challenge of gentrification, or there's another group, how are the immigrants here going to meet the challenges of not being documented? And you would think the way it felt in a lot of ways was uh, my joke on uh, Letterboxd was it was kind of like Parks and Recreation, the director's cut, Hmm. because it really immersed you as that sitcom did, but went for laughs in the day to day grinding of democracy. And I don't know if Wiseman filmed other people and they just weren't as interesting or if he did a lot of research and found these people who would be captivating. But I used to be a local newspaper reporter, and I never covered a city hall meeting where people were as reasonable or as intelligent or as well-mannered in trying to get democracy to function as the people are here. Now, to be fair, 
as my dad pointed out too, these were not a lot of debates between opposing groups. It was a lot of people who had gathered to work together towards some sort of cause. Um, So you didn't have that sense of friction. And maybe the movie could have benefited from exploring the friction in the neighborhood a little bit more. But yeah, it was was fascinating for Mm. its entire running time. Although I did, I'll confess, I ducked out. I did duck out. But I I returned, unlike maybe a third of the audience. You ducked out for what? For what? Well, I ducked out to go to the bathroom. Okay, well that's allowed. No, that's not and, exactly ducking out. And then and then I also because of the schedules was going to Had make a, a quick FaceTime with the family. That didn't work, so I probably only missed like two minutes. Frederick Wiseman, brilliant, and he allows you to FaceTime with hey, your kids. In my defense, I left during a a, a chicken cutting like throat cutting scene, not because I couldn't take it, but when I came back, they were still with the chickens. You so. mean the core scene of the movie? <laughs> Everybody's talking about it, Where it all comes together. It all comes together in that scene. All 190 minutes are about that scene. You'll never really get Frederick I'll watch it again. (laughs) We've been saving an email from a listener, Stephen in San Francisco, actually. Without a little bit more digging, I couldn't tell you whether or not it's the same Stephen from San Francisco we heard from a little bit ago in our poll feedback. But he sent us an email about being an undergrad at UC Berkeley a few years back and having... A guy with a camera walk in and just say, hey, do you mind if I shoot for a little while in here? Yeah, he's got a nice email about, obviously, what turned out to be working with, so to speak, Frederick Wiseman. So we'll save that for a little bit of bonus content down the road. Tiff is known as being a bit of a harbinger of the Oscar race to come, though there is no jury there. There is just the People's Choice Award, an award that has gone to films like The Imitation Game, 12 Years a Slave, The King's Speech, and Slumdog Millionaire over the past few years. The consensus... This year seems to be that the festival didn't exactly launch any Oscar frontrunners. Brie Larson got a lot of acclaim for her performance in the movie Room, directed by Frank's Lenny Abramson. That was one of my most anticipated fall movies. Josh, did you see Room? And if not, what other movies can you say deserve to be highly acclaimed? Didn't see Room. I was really lucky with the documentaries, though. One other one that uh, I appreciated quite a bit comes from another famed documentarian, Barbara Koppel, and it's called Miss Sharon Jones. Um, Sharon Jones, a soul funk singer I was woefully unfamiliar with. And um, this was a great introduction to her and her music. She talks about James Brown as being her her inspiration. And she has that sort of ferocity, both as a, a singer, of course, but as a dancer, too, and as a band leader, her group is Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Oh, yeah. We've played him here on Film Spotter. Uh, okay. And mm-hmm. maybe I, before my time or maybe during my time, and I, I just didn't pick up on it because uh, I've been listening to it since, listening to her stuff since. And I think she even has a Christmas album coming out. All this out. documentary talk is really warming my heart, I know. Josh. I'm I very know. proud I, of you. I wish you could have been there mm. with me. Uh, but, you know, Koppel does something interesting. In a way, so the narrative here is that Jones, a few years ago, was diagnosed with cancer. And so it follows that struggle. And uh, in a way, I think those stories for documentarians can be, I don't want to say too easy, but just uh, an obvious way of getting into someone's life. What I liked about what Koppel did in letting Jones share about her past and her childhood is she really gives us this alternative version of American history, especially when Jones talks about the discrimination she faced as a kid and what she faced coming up in the record business. You know, she's she's not a superstar and she still isn't. And she talks about just how, uh, yes, her, her race, but also her height and comments that producers would make about her looks. And so we just get this this sort of sideways look 
of growing up in America and becoming a artistic success in America with those sorts of hurdles in your way. And the other one that we're definitely going to get to, probably not until, no, I think it is getting a 2015 release date now, is the Charlie Kaufman stop motion film Anomalisa. Can't wait. That we, oh, man. I mean, I... As you might expect, I have not processed it yet. And I would like to say it's just because of the rush of the film festival. And I saw it at the tail end. But really, if that had been the only movie I'd seen in the last 10 days, I would still have not processed it yet. So let's not make that one of those that we see and come immediately out of the screening and review because there would be a lot of silence on that episode. Speak for yourself, Josh. It might just immediately make sense to me. I think I can tap right in. Hey, Charlie Kaufman is turning if, out. If you're up for the challenge, I'll be seeing it a second time, so that's fine. All right, spoiler alert, Adam. In Jackson Heights was just too perfect a fit not to include on my list of the best neighborhood movies. Mm. We'll share the rest of our picks in the film spotting top five when we come back. Stay with us. I was just an altar boy Till I lost my weed. I signed up for the war to see who I could see Oh, but baby I'm back on the street My face a little longer My mind on repeat Guilty as a saint Darkness was my enemy Dark was my friend I was a connoisseur With my own blend Well, one day the light fell on my face I began to moan Six billion people in the world And I sleep alone Josh, we're going to skip our normal donations and thank you segment here in favor of just a couple of quick notes. We did want to mention our featured artist this week, especially as he is a friend of the show, Chuck Prophet from the new album Night Surfer. He's been a listener since very early in the show's history. I think way back to 2005, we played him for the first time on episode 52, and we were talking about behind the scenes here, Sam and myself playing something from his new album, when just last week, listener Peter Gillette tweeted this, can finally cross at Chuck profit off the list and credit where it's due not all film spotting discoveries are films we do love to turn people on to new music so thank you peter for inspiring us to play chuck's latest and we do thank chuck for all the great music over the years also wanted josh to say a quick birthday message to one of the three spouses behind the scenes here at film spotting that indirectly allows this show to happen and she is carrie van Halgren. Happy birthday, Carrie. Indeed. Didn't know that. I'm not going to ask her which birthday it is. I think that she's older rude. than me, slightly, but she doesn't show it at all, unlike me. You act older than Carrie. Yeah, that's it. That's she's, all I can say about it. She's very immature. I don't know how <laughs> Sam tolerates not her. Not what I meant. <laughs> Happy birthday, Carrie. On a sadder, 
more solemn note, we did also want to acknowledge the passing of a fan of the show, someone, Josh, I never got a chance to meet personally, but he was a friend of former co-host Matty Ballgame, Chris Rhodes. He unfortunately died at 38 after a brief battle with an aggressive malignant brain tumor. Our thoughts are certainly with his wife, Nanette, young son, and the rest of Chris's family. Wander through the wind and rain My head in my hands I had nowhere to free my mind Nowhere to even stand Well, then I met an angel This is Craig Brewer, the director of Black Snake Moan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. This is Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It's top five time, and this week... After some internal debate that I'm sad to report started out a little bit passionate and then devolved into total apathy. You did kind of just leave the discussion at one point. I left it up to you. I delegated (laughs) for once in my life, Josh. We settled on the top five neighborhood movies, but by delegating... Funny enough, it came back to the idea I suggested. Yeah. So, well, so what happened? It was it was this or Crime Bosses, and I liked the tie-in of Crime Bosses with Black Mass. Mm-hmm. But as I was looking at options, I liked how my neighborhood movies list was forming more. So here we are. Well, despite my apathy, I'm pretty happy with how my list turned out as well. We'll let listeners be the judge of that, as they always are. This list, of course, was inspired by the South Boston neighborhood where much of Black Mass takes place. Josh, get us started. Did you have a criteria for what constituted a neighborhood? I sure hope you did. And I did. what's your number five? Yeah, I thought about a movie that captures the rhythms or the rules and definitely the people of a particular place. And more literally, the way I tried to wrap my mind around it was thinking that this had to be a walkable area. Hmm. Uh, for me, that's a neighborhood. If, if you can pretty much cover it without getting in your car, um, then you're in a neighborhood. So that was the criteria. The caveat we have to lay out here right at the start is that do the right thing is in the film spotting pantheon. That's right. We can call it the do the right thing memorial list. It we should do be that. or just note that it's in the pantheon. Yeah, because that was an obvious choice, one that was suggested by a lot of listeners. So number five, where I went was Cooley High. Part of our black exploitation marathon we did maybe two years ago, something like that. Cooley High is set in a West Side Chicago neighborhood during the 1960s. The film itself came out in 1975. It's very clear from the opening shot that this is going to be a locale specific movie. If you remember, it opens with that panoramic view of the city's beautiful lakefront, which is pretty much the Hollywood standard shot you get from Chicago. And then it proceeds to, I forget if it zooms in or just turns the camera inward toward a less picturesque area of Chicago where few films ever show us. That's where we follow this pair of high school friends. They're played by Glenn Turman and Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, who spend their days avoiding school, largely chasing girls in their neighborhood. The screenwriter, Eric Monti, grew up in Chicago's notorious Cabrini Green housing project. What stood out to both of us, I think, when we talked about this film was the playfulness and the optimism of the movie, even though some very serious and tragic things take place. Cooley High is it's true to poverty, it's true to danger, captures dilapidated buildings and the garbage-strewn streets. There's also a scene where the kids take a joyride in a stolen car and they're chased by the police, which we know from the past year or so of news reports about police brutality has a potential to go very badly. But despite all of those touches, 
this is a movie that mostly captures the good humor and the camaraderie that these two kids have as they navigate these particular streets. Well, we had similar criteria for this top five. A lot of people on Twitter were suggesting, to me, communities or small towns, which are different than neighborhoods, though neighborhoods are often communities unto themselves. There is still a distinction for me between some of the films we're going to talk about and something like the fictional Santa Carla of the Lost Boys. Mm. That's a town. A lot of people were suggesting westerns, but whether you go with Tombstone from the movie Tombstone or My Darling Clementine or even something like Presbyterian Church from an anti-western like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, those to me, again, are towns. Neighborhoods, to me, are part of a bigger city, and the word you use, rules, was a key one for me. These environments have their own set of codes, their own set of customs, and these movies could not be made anywhere else. They are inextricable from their environment. So when you think of neighborhoods in that context, immediately major cities is a good place to start. What are some of the best movies that are set in L.A., New York City, Boston, London, the East End, for example? Go to Chinatown, Little Italy, Hell's Kitchen. Of course, you could go with Chicago as well. And that's where I went, Josh, with my number five. We did not coordinate this ahead of time. Cooley High. At number five, yeah, too, huh? My number five. Exactly. A film I did really enjoy from our Black Exploitation Marathon. There were other films I think we both liked more or thought were more seminal pieces of work from that time period and from that genre. And yet we were both really struck by all the things you mentioned the optimism of it, while also still being a gritty film that wasn't trying to make it seem more idyllic than it really was. But there's no doubt that Eric Monty was trying to reflect what he experienced growing up. And he had, according to one quote I saw, the best time of his life. So there was a lot of danger, but a lot of times when you're a kid, you don't know that. All you know is your neighborhood. Sure. And so there was a lot he loved about it, and he wanted to bring that love to the screen. Your mention of the opening scene is dead on, and the way the camera then shows us Cabrini Green. But I remember watching the film and seeing the Lincoln Park Zoo and the L and different buses going through different neighborhoods, and it did immediately make me want to redo my top five Chicago movies that I'd done here on the show a couple of years before. I think Cooley High definitely belongs in the conversation. All right, we'll see if we have any other crossovers here, because I'm sticking with a marathon pick at my number four. It's Pather Panchali. Okay. I wondered if you'd go there. Yeah, I thought, you know, it's not a big city. So this is maybe why it's not on your list. Yeah. We have a rural village here, an Indian village in the 1920s. Uh, but I think it fits the criteria that I did set up. This was the movie, Forced to Pick, that I did name as my favorite of our Setuagit Ray marathon. And it's the first in his Opu trilogy. As we follow little Opu, played by Subur Banerjee, uh, through these jungle paths, think about how uh, we go from his little family shack to the more well-off neighbors, to the homes of the other relatives, and I feel like I know my way around these places and how at least Opu got from one to the other. So it does form this neighborhood that is familiar, becomes familiar to us, even though it's in a very foreign place. And I also think the social dynamics, here's where the rules come into play. Mm -hmm. The social dynamics of this village are one of the movie's uh, driving themes. So Father Panchali opens with Opu's sister stealing fruit from their wealthy neighbors. And then we have this subsequent shaming sequence of her mother, the wonderful Karuna Banerjee, for the act of the daughter. And as we discussed then, 
while this trilogy goes on, things like need, honor, shame, which are right there at the beginning and so crucial to this village, they continue to be the driving forces in the life of Apu's family. A masterpiece of a film, and one I did consider, you're right, I initially excluded it because I could only see that house that they lived in. Oh, and okay. even though immediately when you mentioned it, my brain then did go to the opening scene and the neighbors yeah. and those codes and how violently she responds to seeing that girl invading her territory. So it's definitely a neighborhood, and yet I felt like they were so isolated that it feels almost like they're in a village unto themselves to me. Yeah, it does have that tenor to it. Although even their house, too, if you recall, there's almost this open shared courtyard. Mm -hmm. We don't always see much of the people who are living in the other houses nearby, but yeah, it does have that communal sense. When I was putting together this list, it occurred to me that we missed a huge opportunity by not having Massacre Theater this week because we could have performed Rent together, Josh. And it would have been magical. But it turns out we can still sing because of my number four pick, You Can Be Maria, West Side Story. Oh, a much the better musical. musical. Indeed. Yes. Much, much, much better. <laughs> Set on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Lincoln Square, to be exact, on the 200th episode of Film Spotting. It was my number five film spotting discovery. It was a movie I had not seen. A lot of people I went to school with, they were in choir and they would watch it in choir on the last day of school or something. And I couldn't sing and still can't. So I never had that opportunity. And it wasn't a film I was that drawn to because early in my cinephile career, I was never that drawn to musicals, which is precisely why in 2005, when this show started, Sam and I decided that we wanted to do a musicals marathon and we watched West Side Story and I loved it. I really love this movie. Of course, you have Robert Wise's direction, which I think turns this fairly intimate story, this star-crossed lover's tale, of course, a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, into something that feels much more epic. Leonard Bernstein's wonderful score, though, by all accounts, he really hated the orchestration for the film, and Stephen Sondheim's lyrics. You rarely go wrong with Sondheim. The rules, though of the streets here in this neighborhood. You've got the Anglo gang and the Puerto Rican gang and that melting pot dynamic that you get in a lot of big cities, but you especially get, of course, in New York City. And the fact that they are battling from the beginning of the film for control of this neighborhood and those codes coming through in terms of that central relationship, the fact that Tony and Maria can't fall in love because their respective cultures clash so strongly that no one will accept them as a couple. It's simply not allowed. So as a love story, as a musical, as a New York movie, and as a New York neighborhood movie, West Side Story is one I really enjoy. It'll be all right. I know it. We're really together now. <laughs> but it's not us. It's everything around us. Then I'll take you away when nothing can get to us. Anyone or anything. There's a place for us somewhere, a place for us. Yeah, that works well. I didn't think about that. The musical I considered was Young Girls of Rochefort, which is also um, set within this defined neighborhood and community. So maybe something about musicals where they often have uh, that set 
requirement where they're going to be on a sound stage mm-hmm. and they can recreate that sense of a distinct neighborhood. At number three, I went with Tangerine. I still haven't been able to shake this dynamic indie from earlier this summer, which I've already mentioned on the show, and I'd love to see it get consideration for our Golden Brick Award, but the problem is here, director Sean Baker, he's four other features behind him, even though I was unfamiliar with him or any of those The other titles. problem is I haven't seen it yet. Well, I know, but you're way ahead of me on a bunch of other titles. True. So we'll see. We'll see if we can throw it in the mix. Tangerine, this is his shot on a mobile phone, Night in the Life of Two Transgender Prostitutes movie that really brazenly blends a, a high visual aesthetic with harsh street realism to create something that's just truly intoxicating. The particular streets here are a stretch of Hollywood where the prostitutes played by Maya Taylor and Katana Kiki Rodriguez work. As they walk and walk and walk, I mean, talk about not getting in the car, though there is a remarkable scene in a car. Uh, As they walk down these streets, there's just this banal authenticity to the locations, uh, these donut shops, the car washes, the laundromats, and the really dispiriting hotel rooms that they find themselves in throughout this night. It's another case where, after watching Tangerine, uh, I feel like we could probably be dropped into the middle of the movie and be able to find our way around pretty easily. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing our top five neighborhood movies inspired by the new Johnny Depp film, Black Mass. And even though Black Mass doesn't deserve it at all, Josh, I was planning to find a spot on my list to pay tribute to Black Mass and Whitey Bulger and South Boston by picking a Boston movie. And I was all set to go with The Friends of Eddie Coyle, the Robert Mitchum film from the 70s, which I do really enjoy. And then it hit me that the movie that really belongs here is one I reference, one we both reference during our review of Black Mass, the much better Martin Scorsese film, usually associated, of course, with his home, New York City, and Mean Streets, by the way, in my penalty box, otherwise would be on this list. Here he is, of course, exploring the mean streets of Boston in The Departed, a film that is a remake of the Hong Kong movie Infernal Affairs, but is loosely based as it's been transposed to Boston on the life and times of Whitey Bulger played by Jack Nicholson in this film, Matt Damon as his inside man, and Leonardo DiCaprio as the foil to Damon. They're both looking for each other. They're both snitches, if you will. And this was just on the other night, and I hadn't seen it. It was a Saturday night, flipping through channels before going to bed, and I got immediately sucked back into it. It's just as good as I remember it being when it came out. DiCaprio's performance, that was a role that turned him into one of my favorite actors. He actually really wasn't up to that point. Damon is really good as well. He has just slightly too much charm, as if he's acting for it a little bit, which he is, of course, because his whole persona is a charade. And Scorsese, I noted this during a review at the time, but I noticed probably five or six other touches this time that I didn't notice back when I saw it in the theater. He has so much fun with masculinity in that movie, which is really what it's all about, and a masculine identity. There's a scene where Vera Farmiga, who is living with Matt Damon's character, they've moved in together, she comes out, he's already having breakfast, and she says something along the lines of, you know, guys make too much of a big deal out of it. It's really not that bad. Clearly suggesting that They tried to have a little romantic tryst the night before, and he couldn't perform. He doesn't want to talk about it. As she's talking to him about it and saying it's not really a big deal, she's peeling and tearing apart a banana. Scorsese 
has little clever flourishes like that throughout this whole movie. And there are a couple different scenes I think of in particular that fit into the scheme of the rules and codes of a neighborhood. One being when Mark Wahlberg's character, another cop, is trying to bring in DiCaprio to go undercover, but tells him, as a kid, you were upper class during the weeks, then you're dropping your R's and you're hanging in the big bad Southie projects with your daddy. So you're changing your accent, you're changing your entire demeanor, you're a completely different person when you're in Southie versus the person you are when you're outside of those streets. And another scene I love, and we'll play a part of it here because it's just so good with Ray Winston, is where DiCaprio gets insulted sitting at a bar next to a guy and picks up a bottle and hits the guy in the head. And Winston, who is Nicholson's right-hand guy, steps in and stops him and asks DiCaprio's character if he knows who he is. No. No. But I'm the guy that tells you there are guys you can hit, and there's guys you can't. Now, that's not quite a guy you can't hit, but it's almost a guy you can't hit. So I'm going to make a roll in on this right now. You don't hit him. You understand? Yeah, excellent. Fine. So my favorite part of that, Josh, is the, now that's not quite a guy you can't hit, but it's almost a guy you can't hit. So he gets to make those rules here on the street. There are those delineations, but even with those delineations, it's subjective. It's tenuous. It's ethereal. People who come into it may not completely understand all the nuances of the rules of that neighborhood, but that's why you have people like Ray Winston around. So I love The Departed, my number three. Yeah, it would be great to watch that again. It's been too long since I've seen it. My number two, I mentioned earlier in the show when I talked about being at TIFF in Jackson Heights, the Frederick Wiseman documentary, my first. Talk about being immersed in a neighborhood. I mean, this is the Jackson Heights section of Queens, and we just sit there and soak it up, the day-to-day life, mainly because of Wiseman's unobtrusive extended takes that get these residents at work or interacting with each other. We just watch and listen. At 190 minutes, it's hugely expansive, so we get a real sense of the various nationalities. We spend time exploring religious traditions and all of the basic social structures that make Jackson Heights this unique and really thriving neighborhood. This is going to be playing at the Chicago International Film Festival in October. So Chicago listeners will have a chance to check it out. It also is going to get a limited release in November, I think November 4. So if you have a free week, you can set it aside it's to watch a, it Jackson Heights. A little less than a week. Josh but... loves it because you can actually step out, do a load of laundry, come back. And it's the, are dry. it's the same scene. And it might be the same scene. <laughs> I kid. I love Frederick Weissman. My number two, Josh, is a movie that I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's come up in the four years or so you've been doing film spotting. So I don't know how you feel about it, but it was my number two movie of 2008, two slots ahead of a film from the same director. The director was Gus Van Zant. That film was Paranoid Park. My number two neighborhood movie is Milk his biopic about Harvey Milk, who, of course, was the first openly gay person to be elected to public office in California. He was a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And the neighborhood in question here, of course, that he lived in and worked in and fought for so strongly throughout his unfortunately cut short life and career was the Castro District in San Francisco. A lot of Milk was filmed on Castro Street and other San Francisco locations, including his former storefront, which was a place called Castro Camera. You the new renters? Well, hello, Harvey Milk. Desmond Welcome Conley. to Castro Camera. Yeah. yeah, 
Hey, you know, I would like to join the, um, what's it called, the Eureka Valley Merchants Association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not an interloper. A Jew, perhaps. <laughs> but I hope you'll forgive that. If you open those doors, the Merchants Association of the police pull your license. Under what law? Excuse me? There's man's law, and there's God's law in this neighborhood. Uh -huh. And in this city. You know, we pay taxes. The San Francisco police force is happy to enforce either. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you for the warm welcome to the neighborhood. I know some people weren't blown away by this film as much as I was. It's fairly restrained and conventional by Gus Van Sant standards, especially compared to something a little more artsy like Paranoid Park. But there are visual moments that only Van Sant would capture, I think. And the way he makes this biopic feel like it's happening and unfolding right before our eyes, which, of course, is the trick of a movie like this, because... In this case, I was very aware of the life of Harvey Milk, having a few years before that talked about here on the show during a documentaries marathon, the documentary, The Times of Harvey Milk. So I knew where this was going. And yet somehow between Penn's performance, Harris Savidi's camera, this is a guy who knows how to shoot San Francisco in the 70s after you've also seen him shoot Fincher's Zodiac and Van Sant's direction. The screenplay from Dustin Lance Black, it felt like I was watching all of these events I already knew just unfold right before me. And you certainly can't talk about Harvey Milk without talking about the Castro. I forgot that Van Sant had those two films in the same year. That's right. I, I did like Milk, actually. Uh, like Paranoid Pike, a little bit better, probably. That was mm. maybe more my speed. All right. At number one. How Green Was My Valley. I was so glad to get a chance to finally cross this off my blind spotting list a few weeks ago. Just happened to be the perfect film for our top five neighborhood movies list. This is John Ford's 1941 picture. It's about a coal mining town in 19th century Wales and was actually shot on Fox property in California. Of all the films on this list, this is the one where I could tell you exactly how to get around the neighborhood from the mine to the church to the pub to the Morgan household. And it's because Ford has lined it up that way. And many of his shots are looking down the street where the houses are along a row and we see the mine in the distance. Now, even though the movie does focus on the Morgans, the parents and six sons and the one daughter, Ford very much offers this portrait of a community here and the neighborhood that defines them. They're united in song a lot of the times. There's so many singing scenes in this picture. And also by Ford's composition, which favors group shots that are frequently facing the camera. Will you say something, Mother? Go on, say something. What can I say? You found plenty to say the last time you spoke. It should be easier now with friends. Uh, well, well, come and eat everyone. This is somewhat similar to Cooley High, my number five pick in a lot of ways. It does document a difficult life, but it does so with such an emphasis on optimism and neighborliness that it ultimately feels really life-affirming. Although when it's over, you look back on all the things that has happened to this family uh, that doesn't seem to make sense, but that's the mood that you're left with at the end. A film, correct me if I'm wrong, is somewhat slighted in movie snob circles because it beat Citizen Kane for Best Picture 
that year, I believe. Yeah, that sounds right. And uh, there was interesting. Peter Labuza got in touch with me on Twitter and pointed to me to a Kristen Thompson essay, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David Boardwell's the, partner. Sen- yes, on the sentimentality of the movie and how it really, you know, sometimes people will write it off for being too sentimental, but that there's a, a richness and an authenticity to how Ford does it here. Uh, that's a great essay to track down. We can maybe link to that. And I completely agree with um, how the movie works in well, that manner. Thank you, Josh, for having a top three that I haven't seen. I really? appreciate that. My number one neighborhood movie was a no-brainer pick for me, Josh, despite the fact that I did try to balance the fact that I didn't want a list to be too heavy with gang movies. Because clearly movies that are set in certain neighborhoods are going to overlap with gang movies. A lot of times those films are about people. I mean, they really fundamentally are about people trying to protect their turf. turf. That said, I couldn't avoid The Warriors as my number one New York set. And the reason why, Josh, is because It really is a film all about protecting that turf and moving through various pieces of turf. So it starts in Riverside Park, where all these gangs have gotten together, and then it culminates in Coney Island, obviously another iconic New York neighborhood. And in between, we see the gang, the Warriors, as they've been falsely accused of killing the real gang leader in town, or the big leader, Cyrus. They're trying to work their way back home safely and have to navigate all these different neighborhoods Time Out New York did, a few years back, I think, a list of the best movies set in New York City neighborhoods, and the Warriors made the list. And I think they spoke very eloquently about what Walter Hill accomplishes in The Warriors. They said, Hill has elevated his story of a novice gang on the run into a heroic epic of Arthurian dimensions with sex as sorcery and the flick knife as sword. Anyone expecting gritty realism will be disappointed because Hill is offering something better. Shooting entirely on New York City locations at night, he has transformed the city into a phantasmagoric labyrinth of weird tribes and fantastic dress and makeup who move over and under the streets as untouched as troglodytes by the civilization sleeping around them. The novice gang from Coney accidentally encounters some middle-class swingers on the subway, and the two groups stare at each other like aliens from different galaxies, while the gang's new female recruit has to be gently restrained from instinctively putting a hand up to straighten her hair. It is those touches that makes this movie stand out as something much more than just a gang movie, a sort of titillating, violent film. It gets something fundamentally right about who these young people are and what defines them, what separates them in terms of identity from other people inhabiting the same space or a space just a few blocks over. It's those little touches that Walter Hill gets so right. Of course, the movie is also just a lot of damn fun. I watched The Warriors all the time when I was much younger, and I really haven't had a chance to watch it in its entirety as an adult, but when I have seen it, when I have watched the last 30 minutes or so, I still have the same pleasure watching it as I did when I was in junior high. The problem in the past has been the man turning us against one another. We have been unable to see the truth because we have been fighting for 10 square feet of ground. Our turf. Our little piece of turf. That's crap, brothers. The turf is ours by right, because it's our turn. All we have to do is keep up the general truce. We take over one borough at a time. Secure our territory. Secure our turf, because it's all our turf. 
turf. There's one I haven't seen, so there okay, you go. Okay, well, I feel so much better now. Those are our top five neighborhood movies. What about some honorable mentions for you? I could have put Beasts of the Southern Wild on here, but that's still in my penalty box. How about Rear Window? That's a very small neighborhood, but I think it counts. Attack the Block. That got a lot of support on Twitter, and it is a great film. I had it on episode 487 on my list of the top five things that came from space to destroy us. I think that was one of our longest <laughs> titles for <laughs> a list right. ever. A couple other Twitter suggestions here. Dave Chappelle's Block Party. Josh Oakley mentioned that. City of God. Nick Jacobson threw that one out there. Boys in the Hood, of course, we could have done. David Gordon Green's George Washington. Winter's Bone, my favorite film of 2010. I had that on episode 466. It's hard for me to think of that as a neighborhood, though. Again, these are small rural communities. But think about her spending that time walking from place to place looking for evidence of her father. Certainly about codes and unwritten and sometimes written rules. Had it on a previous list, though, so left it off. The Burbs. People are going to be really disappointed neither of us picked The Burbs. I've never seen it. I have seen it. So they're going to be really mad at me. When did it come out? Like 89, I think. I saw it then, haven't since. Can't vouch for it based on that. And all the Shyamalan talk last week. What about The Village? It's a village. It's not a neighborhood. It doesn't qualify. I actually like The Village. So I'm one of those people that likes The Village up until the ending and really respects what he's going for. And then I feel like Shyamalan completely undoes all the goodwill of the film with the twist ending. Fair enough. Yeah. For me, I certainly considered Attack the Block, A Serious Man, another film from the Coen brothers I really like set in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Chicago movies, Neighborhoods, you have to talk about a couple of documentaries like Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters. Another penalty box movie for me from the Coen brothers, Inside Lewin Davis very clearly set there in the West Village, and that's the only way he almost gets around other than a trek on the interstate to get to Chicago at one point in that film. You could talk about a lot of suburban movies as well, beyond just the Burbs, Josh, movies like Poltergeist, The Ice Storm, E.T., Little Children, very much about the dynamic within neighborhoods. There are a lot of Spike Lee films you could consider in addition to Do the Right Thing. I am a big fan of Crooklyn, his nostalgic film about growing up in Brooklyn. And the last one I'll mention that I just couldn't shoehorn onto the list because I couldn't find a neighborhood in particular. Despite all the searching I did, there was never one particular neighborhood that stood out as being identifiable with this movie, but there is a city certainly that's identifiable with it. The movie is M. The city is Berlin. And the reason I thought of it as a neighborhood movie is one of the great elements of that film is the fact that the police actually enlist the underworld to help catch this serial killer. So that's the community that obviously is inhabiting Probably the same neighborhood, maybe a little bit wider than your walkable area of Berlin, but they all come together to catch this guy. It seemed appropriate. Yeah, there's there's the one rule, right, that's broken that they won't stand for as a community. Absolutely. We want to hear your picks. Please send your top five neighborhood movies or just your favorite. That's fine, too. To feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Also at filmspotting.net, take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. It is a doozy. A Ridley Scott deathmatch. Alien 
versus Blade Runner. A doozy, a little nod to our friend Stephen Tobolowsky and Dave Chen's new movie, The Primary Instinct. Out in wide release, The Green Inferno. This is a Peruvian cannibal horror film from Eli Roth. That's out in wide release? I uh, wasn't really interested by just the cannibal horror film, but throw Peruvian in there. Can't avoid it. Hotel Transylvania 2. The Intern, this is De Niro as the intern at an online fashion website, and Hathaway as CEO. It's directed by Nancy Myers. A few movies opening here in Chicago and out in limited release, The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. It comes to us from Stanley Nelson, the director of a great documentary, Jonestown, The Life and Death of the People's Temple. Stonewall, this is a movie that I think is getting pretty scathing reviews for the most part set at the time of the 1969 Stonewall riots, the pivotal moment in the gay rights movement. It is directed by, surprisingly, Roland Emmerich of Independence Day and Godzilla 98 fame. Sicario, the movie we're most interested in, and it is expanding this weekend to more screens. Next week, we are planning to talk about that film and the top five, again, up for grabs a little bit, looking for great ideas, maybe going with movies that are set south of the border, Mexico movies. But if you come up with something better, whether it's sending it to us via Twitter or via email, we will consider it. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week, it's by Chuck Prophet and comes from his new album, Night Surfer. More information is at chuckprophet.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.